your Bibles and we'll return to the letter of Titus. The letter of Titus. We started our series last week by looking at Titus 1 verses 1 through 4. This morning we have just one verse. Titus 1 and verse 5. Most days at my house, around 3.15 p.m., a certain game begins in our front yard. Several neighborhood children ranging in age from 3 to 11 join my children to play with great intensity, a game that I have playfully begun to call yell ball. This game vaguely resembles kickball. It's a rather loosely organized and managed game and includes much intense debate as to who's out or what base someone should be on or should not have advanced to. There are vehement discussions about how fast or slow a pitch should be and whether or not a poor kick can be retaken. There regularly ensues charged conversations about what is fair and what is not. And usually it has nothing to do with the rules. Now on occasion I'll step outside and see if I can exert some kind of influence on the spirit of the game by reminding them of the general rules and the boundaries and the point that it's more fun if everyone agrees to abide by the rules and play together. And yet very soon the game goes back to how it began. I've been encouraged to let them keep trying to work it out on their own. In his book, The Coddling of the American Mind, Jonathan Haidt makes the point that unstructured play is good and healthy for children as they have to learn through trial and error how to work together, how to understand and come together and and recognize that rules are important, leadership is important. It's better to collaborate than it is to argue. And yet this is a good illustration of how we are in our nature as sinful human beings and how we act if we're leaning on that nature as leaders. We see that kind of scenario play out even in our government, don't we? Our leaders sometimes yell and argue that their point of view absolutely cannot be wrong. And if a mistake has been made, it had to be somebody else's fault. What happens in my front yard is really a microcosm of the need of leadership and order. And yet what these children are demonstrating is the need to learn what kind of leadership that we all need and ultimately desire, whether we recognize that or not. Pastor and author Juan Sanchez introduces his book, The Leadership Formula, by asking why are we so obsessed with leadership? Well, part of the answer is that good leadership leads to success, the health of an organization. The strength of our leaders directly affects the strength of our organization. And another part of the answer is that we ourselves often desire leadership and influence. It's usually a good motivation. We want to help. But it can also be tainted with our Sinful desires for recognition and prominence. We want to determine the rules of the game. We want to be heard and followed. We observe this when we think of a children's game like this. 
But how do we in our fallen condition tend to choose leaders? Are we focused on what God tells us to look for? Think back in our series through 1 Samuel. Even godly Samuel is seduced by appearances when he sought to find a king among Jesse's sons. Think of how Israel chose Saul because of his looks. He looked like a king. Well, what does a king look like? Well, he's taller than everybody else. How well did that work? Sanchez writes again, I have to wonder if part of the leadership problem in the church today is that we are so drawn to competency, so enamored with giftedness that we fail to consider the biblical qualifications for leadership. The Bible does expect competency from Christian leaders. It's just that throughout scripture, character is always emphasized over competency. We'll see this even more clearly when we look at the qualifications listed for an elder in verses 6 through 9 next week. What we see, though, of our God is that he uses the seemingly incompetent to confound the competent leaders of the world. And as we begin in our thinking about leadership, I want us to recognize right away the great contrast between the way that we as humans tend to think of leadership and the way that God describes it. Last week, we saw it emphasized that leadership in God's economy starts with humble service. Now, what we see in Scripture and specifically in this letter of Titus is that leadership is so important that God has not left us to ourselves to devise our own model. He tells us who to be looking for. He tells us what they should be doing. We're going to look at just verse 5 this morning as we consider what godly leadership looks like in the church. Yet I want to read verses 5 through 12 to see what's at stake to begin to put in your mind these qualifications. Let's look at Titus Chapter 1 and verse 5. God's word says to us, his people, this is why I left you in Crete. Here's a purpose statement so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. We'll end our reading there. Let's ask for God's help as we consider this passage And what it means for our church together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us to see what it is here that you've designed for us in this pattern. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand how to apply it well. 
in our own church family. In Jesus' name, amen. What we see in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, is that Christ builds up his church through the faithful stewardship of godly leaders. This is going to be part one of two parts. We'll see really this is all together verses 5 through 9. This morning just verse 5. Now we may be tempted to think that a discussion on church order, church structure, leadership is not really all that important because there's only a few of us that are leaders, right? But what I want you to see here in this passage is that godly spiritual leadership is vital for a healthy church. And Paul intends for churches, congregations to understand what they're looking for in leaders. This isn't just a passage to those who would be leaders. It's for the whole church to understand and embrace and hold on to. In a day where there's much discussion about church growth and church health, Paul addresses those issues directly in this letter. What is it that will make a church thrive and be able to defend itself against the ever-present assault of false teaching? Has God thought of and provided answers for that kind of a question? The answer here is that Paul believes that godly spiritual leadership is the key to developing healthy churches, building up the faith of God's people, and protecting them from grave error. Have you seen it already in our study of Titus? There's two things, sound teaching and godly leaders. That's it. And yet without healthy spiritual leadership, it is essentially impossible to have a healthy church. We need to know what healthy leadership is because it affects all of us. It will determine how honoring to Christ, to his word, we are. Throughout the New Testament, and especially here in this letter to Titus, Christ builds up healthy churches through godly leaders who are committed to teaching his people his word. Now this morning, as we consider what is here in verse 5, I want us to think together what Paul is calling the church to believe with conviction. Every church should be pursuing greater stability and greater health through sound teaching and godly leadership. So this morning, as we pursue that, we're going to look at five questions that arise as we think through how God intends for us to structure our leadership in the church. Question number one, who is responsible to lead the church? I want us to back up and get a New Testament framework For how we're to understand a text like this. When we think through who should lead the church. We have to start with the right foundation. If we try to organize and choose which leaders and programs to pursue. Without his help. Without his direction. We will certainly go astray. To start with the wrong focus. Will lead us to trying to please the wrong audience. And aim at a worldly view of success in the church. What we need to recognize and continually remind ourselves is that Christ is the head of his church, of this church. Ephesians 5.23 says Christ is the head of the church, his body, and he himself is its savior. Colossians 1.18, Christ is before or above or supreme over all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. 
He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might be preeminent. That's the goal. That's the point. And finally, in Ephesians 4, 15 and 16, we read that as a body, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body makes itself grow and builds itself up in love. So Christ is the authority, the foundation, the goal of the church. We must not merely give lip service to this truth. We're to hold to it firmly, to cling to it in our practice, to deepen our resolve, to make much of our Christ. That's why his word is the authority in this pulpit and in those seats. No man has the right to determine what he wants to accomplish in Christ's church. And he dare not try to accomplish his work in his own strength. We believe and hold fast to the truth that Christ will build his church his way. And we want him to do all he intends to do. By honoring him, by honoring and hearing his word. That's why we regularly remind ourselves that in our services, in our worship, we pray the word, we sing the word, we hear the word, we preach the word, we see the word in the ordinances. Because the church is no mere human organization. This is not a normal gathering. This is not intended to be merely a human gathering where we do our best to keep your attention. We give him our attention. It's his body, and we honor it when we hold to that conviction. We're to love the church, we're to give ourselves to it, because our Christ spilled his blood for it, and is eternally invested in its growth and health. I want you to love that statement, because it's so biblical, and it keeps us oriented in the right direction. We're to love the church and give ourselves to it because our Christ died for it and is eternally invested in its growth and health. I was personally reminded of how the Lord emphasized this in my life this week. It brought back to my mind as I was talking to a family member. There was a time in our lives... Uh, My wife and I, when we were traveling for our college, we had the privilege of visiting dozens and dozens of churches. And it was very easy as a 20-something-year-old to think that I knew what a good church should look like. I had certain expectations. But until I considered that each church, with all its quirks and flaws and weaknesses, was still part of the bride for which he died, only then did I begin to value it as God would desire me to do and stop standing above it, critiquing it and enjoying it for what God calls it and created it to be. Even though I'd grown up in church all my life, only in that time, in those moments, did I begin to value and view the church as God's word would have me. Number two, what is the role of the congregation? As we think of leadership in the church, this is a common question. What is the role of the congregation? All members of Christ's body are priests and ministers to God. 
were all, every member, both the shepherds and the sheep were all sheep, were servants of one another and of our king. That's why we regularly will say from time to time, you'll hear it, that we believe in every member ministry. It's not about programs, it's about people. The Great Commission is go make disciples of people. It's not go plant churches and and set up these great programs. Disciple people. Revelation 1 verses 5 and 6 says, To him, Jesus Christ, who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. We've rehearsed 1 Peter 2 verse 9 often in the last few months. It reminds us, you, God's people, the congregation, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. You have that identifying marker so that you may declare the wonderful deeds of him. We're gathered to make much of him. The one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We make clear that the leaders of this church, of a gospel church, they are not priests. They are not mediators between God and men. That role is reserved for Christ alone. Every Christian is a minister. Every Christian is a servant of God who is to be active doing the work of God. You see, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all have work to do. We all have privilege and dignity and honor as we're united to our Christ. Ephesians 4.12, though, tells us pastors and teachers are gifts given to Christ's church in order to develop and equip the saints for the work of ministry. The congregation of God's people carry great authority because of who they are. Oftentimes, I think we get this confused. We don't honor the scriptures because we we make the congregation's authority about things that are honestly rather mundane and practical. Scriptures affirm the congregation's authority in the most important matters in the church. Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, tell us that the church, the congregation, decides who's to be considered in and out. It practices church discipline. Galatians 1, the church body is to defend and protect the gospel by knowing what the gospel is, by promoting it. Some churches teach that the elders or spiritual leaders of the church hold all the authority. But here at Subar Road, we believe, affirm, and teach that the congregation has the final authority in the most significant matters of the church. As we consider the pattern of leadership in our church, we believe that elder-led congregationalism is the most biblically faithful form of church government. There's a cooperation, a partnership. Elders lead the congregation through the word, and the congregation exercises authority in several key areas. Membership, church discipline, promoting gospel priorities. So now, with these two things in mind, That Christ is the head of the church. The congregation has authority. Let's come back to Titus 1.5. Where Paul says to Titus, This is why I left you in Crete. So that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed or commanded you. 
I want you to see in our text, first of all, just how intentional Paul is in this instruction. In his mind, he's absolutely convinced that focusing on the structure, identification, and development of godly leaders is absolutely essential for the growth and health and protection of God-honoring churches. I want you to see the intentionality here in this verse for yourself. So look again at verse 5. He says, this is why I left you in Crete. Get things in order. What is an elder? In Paul's letters to Timothy, and here again in his letter to Titus, he gives clear instructions to focus on establishing and equipping godly leaders to lead Christ's churches and protect them from false teachers. So Paul's strategy for spiritual church growth in these churches and for our church is two-pronged. Gospel preaching, faithful, sound doctrine, and godly leadership. Now, there are seemingly two purposes in this verse for Titus's appointment. This phrase, so that you might put what remained into order, is rather an unusual combination of Greek words. First, He's saying that he would put what remained into order. There's something lacking. There's areas of need. Paul had to leave before completing all the work he intended to complete. So there are things still to be done that Paul had left undone. But the second half of the phrase indicates that there are certain matters that are disordered. There are things happening that shouldn't be happening. For the building up of these churches, Titus must complete some tasks... And restore other areas to health. And notice once again. Paul's humility and ultimate commitment to God's work being done. One theologian points out. Paul's modesty in freely allowing someone else to complete what he's begun. Is the model for each of us. And even though Titus is greatly his inferior in experience. Perhaps in gifting. He does not refuse to have him put finishing touches to his own work. This is to be the disposition of all godly leaders. That means both here in the church, but wherever leadership is as a Christian. In the home, in the workplace, among your children, among your spouse. It is not domination. It is not authoritarian. It is care. Ultimately, before our God. So all Godly leaders should have this disposition, not that each should selfishly strive to have everything done as he wants it, but that they should help others. Now, maybe when you hear the term elder, maybe this is a new concept for you as you think about church structure, your mind runs first to someone who is advanced in age. Maybe that's what you have in mind of elder, like elderly. Or perhaps you think of elders in a Presbyterian church. Maybe that's the only place you've heard of those officers. Now certainly this term is used in both of those contexts. But I want you to be convinced of, most importantly, that this is a biblical term. This hasn't been taken and owned by one group or denomination. This is a biblical term. And our responsibility before God is to understand it. It's also historically not just a designation for one denomination. If you study Baptist church history farther than our lifetimes, you'll actually see this is not uncommon in Baptist churches. 
Yet for most of us in our experience, in my experience, I've not experienced an elder-led church. Plan to demonstrate even more fully on Sunday evenings in the coming months as we talk about how to implement this, that this is the case. I want to see now four different terms that we see in the New Testament for the church leaders. First, elders. And there it's a plurality. We see this all over the New Testament. Every time elders is mentioned, it's mentioned in the plural. We'll talk about what that means in a few moments. We have it here in Titus 1.5. I want you to appoint elders in every town. It's in Acts 14.23 that we heard read this morning. They appointed elders, Paul and Barnabas, on that first missionary journey for them in every church. Plural elders in a single church. With prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord. Now, commentator Robert Yarborough concludes, there is a parallel between every town here in Titus and each church in Acts 14, which speaks of elders being appointed as pastoral leaders during Paul's first missionary journey. What we're arguing is that from the text is that there should be a plurality of leaders no matter how newly planted the church is, no matter how old the church is. The goal, whether they're able to do that or not, is to seek and raise up and invest in more godly leaders, more elders for the church. So think of that in Titus. He's going to perhaps, let's say there's 10 churches on the island of Crete. Even though those are newly planted churches, it may be that there's only one qualified man, but the goal is still to find a plurality of men. Think about the church at Ephesus. Paul had spent three years with those men. Certainly their level of maturity and training was far different than what Titus is doing, but it doesn't matter. The intention is still the same. Acts 20, verse 17. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church singular. Philippians 1.11, to the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. And, and there I do believe the emphasis is on that singular church with the overseers and the deacons. We saw this in 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2. I exhort the elders, plural, among you, shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight. And there we have all three of those terms that we're going to look at. Elders, pastor, overseer. Finally, James 5.14, is anyone sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. John Stott writes that it is in a team ministry that room can be found for different people with different gifts. He continues, within 15 years of the resurrection, there were already a plurality of elders in the Jerusalem church according to Acts 11 verse 30. What he's arguing is this is the consistent pattern of the New Testament. Bible scholar Thomas Schreiner says this in regard to this pattern. The church or churches in Jerusalem had elders. According to Acts 14:23, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders in all the churches visited and established during their first missionary journey. When a contingent of leaders visited Paul from Ephesus, they were called elders. The person who is sick and needs prayer is encouraged to summon the elders of the church. The pastoral epistles shows that the elders again function in Ephesus and were to be appointed in Crete. So here's his conclusion and what I'm hoping we're coming to, not from my statements, from the text. 
Every piece of evidence we have shows that elders were widespread in the early church. They are mentioned by different authors. So this isn't just a Pauline thing. They're mentioned by Luke in Acts. They're mentioned by Paul. They're mentioned by Peter. And they're mentioned by James. They stretch over a whole wide region of the Greco-Roman world. Most of the known world at the time. From Jerusalem, Palestine, the whole of Asia Minor, and Crete. So it is also most likely the elders functioned as a plurality in the church. Since the term is always plural. We also must make clear that the office of elders is for spiritually mature men. The qualification listed here and in 1 Timothy 3 throughout the rest of the New Testament demonstrate that this office applies to men alone. We'll see next week. He must be the husband of one wife. If you read through verses 6 through 9, Paul refers to the elder as a he over and over. In God's good and wise design, he has chosen for men to take the lead for the good of all those under his care. Elders are to be completely committed to doing God's work, God's way, for God's people, recognizing they are ultimately accountable to Christ for their faithfulness. The second term we see, we'll move through these very quickly, overseers. Elder and overseer are used interchangeably here in our text. Look down. In verse 5, Paul uses the word for elder. In verse 7, he uses the word for overseer to refer to the same office. This word highlights the function of an elder as one who leads, who superintends, who guards, who watches over the local church. The third term, pastors. Though this is our most common used term, it's the least used in the New Testament. And that's okay. They all refer to the same office. The noun pastor occurs only once in the New Testament as it refers to church leaders. We've said before that's Ephesians 4. When we read, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds or pastors and teachers. Or as some translations say, the pastor teachers. Though the noun form of the word is used only once, we see the verb used in two other places. Acts 20, 28. Paul commands the Ephesian elders, be on guard for yourselves for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd or to pastor the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. This emphasizes, I think, really the demeanor of a pastor. He's to care for his flock as a gentle and faithful shepherd, leading the church family, guiding them, walking in front of them, modeling, being an example as he teaches and preaches, as he cares for their various spiritual needs. As we saw in 1 Peter, he is Christ's under-shepherd. The flock is not his own. Lastly, leaders. This is a general description for the spiritual leadership of the church. It's used less frequently, but again, it is in the plural, and it shows up primarily in the book of Hebrews. I'll read just one of those texts. Hebrews 13, 17 tells us, Obey your leaders. That's referring to the pastors, overseers, elders, and submit to them for they watch over your souls. I want you to be impressed by the weight, the sobriety of this responsibility. They watch for your souls as those who will give an account 
to whom will they give account? To our king. So let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Certainly your pastors, your leaders, your elders, overseers, whichever title you choose, are humans. They will not always serve you perfectly, but their goal is to point you to our Savior as they lean on him to accomplish the work he's given them to do. Fourthly, what do elders do? We'll just spend very general time thinking about this question. Elders, pastors, overseers feed the flock of God with the word and they lead them. Think again of that scene with Jesus and Peter on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. What does Jesus tell Peter? Feed my lambs. Tend my flock. This primarily includes preaching and teaching, but it can also include guarding the flock from error. In our modern churches, determining helpful church policies that promote and defend right teaching, overseeing our outreach and mission efforts, giving direction regarding the church's finances. Are we spending on gospel efforts, coming alongside ministry leaders to offer support and guidance? And yet what we also see from this passage is that elders are to work together as a team. Because there's a plurality, they're supposed to be a team. One teacher then makes this point. To place the responsibility in the hands of several brethren rather than in the hands of one individual is God's way of safeguarding his church against the evils, the natural tendency that result from the domination of a strong personality. God has purposed that several brothers should unitedly bear responsibility in the church so that even in controlling its affairs, they have to depend on one another and submit to one another. This in a real way, in this real way, they will have opportunity to give practical expression what the whole body is supposed to be doing. As they honor one another and trust one another, each regarding the other as fellow members this element of mutuality, which, the peculiar, which is the peculiar feature of the church, will be preserved. So even as they're interacting together, they're modeling how we as a church are to get along and interact. The last question, how are elders chosen? This is a common question and one that we've received and heard in recent weeks. It's a good and natural question. So how are our elders chosen the answer is that both the pastors and the congregation have great responsibility in choosing future leaders. Notice that Paul tells Titus here that Titus is to appoint these men to the role of elder. In 2 Timothy 2.2, he instructs Timothy to continually find faithful men who can teach others also. Godly spiritual leaders are responsible to identify, train, and promote other godly leaders. They're uniquely equipped to do that. They know what the role requires. And yet we have examples in scripture of the congregation identifying and helping choose the leaders. We see this all the way back in the Pentateuch. In Deuteronomy 1.13 we read, Moses telling the, the congregation of Israel, choose for your tribes wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. The qualifications listed here in Titus would seem to demonstrate that Titus had to have the trust of the congregations. If Titus is new to the island, he doesn't know these men as well as the congregations would. 
How is he to know that they're all above reproach? That they meet the qualifications? That they're able to shepherd effectively? Shepherds must have the trust and confidence of the sheep they're to be leading. The sheep are to be thinking very carefully about what spiritual, godly leadership looks like and help the pastors identify them, the next leaders. Now, here's how we've practiced this in our church. Just over a year ago, we identified Pastor Jonathan as a man qualified in character and gifting to serve as a pastor or elder in our congregation. Your pastors identified, presented him to the congregation as a man to consider, and you affirmed that choice. Each year, we ask the congregation to nominate men for the offices of spiritual leadership. The church leaders then vet those nominations, and then we present them back to the congregation to be affirmed. It's a cooperation. Now, some of the particulars of how this will work out We will discuss as we go along, as we work through this. But in general, it will be very similar to what we're already doing. It's a cooperation. And both the pastors and the congregation need to take this responsibility very seriously. Titus is emphasizing both the leaders and the congregation is to be committed to choosing spiritually mature men with the characters and gifts that fit this role. And that's why when we read about this in the New Testament, you see prayer accompanying these decisions almost every time. Choosing spiritual leaders is a sobering requirement. It should not be entered into lightly. This is not a human organization. This is his church. The last question I want to put before you is personal or unique to our church family. Why should we pursue this kind of a change? Perhaps you've asked that question in your mind over the last few weeks. Why should we make this change? Things seem to be going well. We're at peace as a church. We already have three pastors, so we're practicing plurality. Why are we focusing on this? Making a change of this nature? Several answers to this why question. Why pursue this change? Because we want to follow the pattern of the entire Bible, especially seen in the New Testament. Before God, I have to answer how I'm leading this body. And I believe the pattern that I'm seeing in the New Testament is that there's a plurality of men, both lay and staff pastors. I'll explain why I think this is important as we go, but I think this has to be the start. If this is what the New Testament says, it's not up to me. It's not up to just us to say, well, I'm not comfortable with this. I'm not used to this. This isn't my tradition. I've never experienced this. Paul believed this was important enough to practice in each church he established. Do you think Titus is going to establish staff pastors, plural, in every church? Could that be what he's doing? It's not. That can't be the answer to what's happening. So what would cause us to balk at such a change if we can see this clearly in the scriptures? Is my comfort, is our comfort, familiarity with another system or the status quo a good reason to avoid working through this change as a church family? I want you to understand that this has been something that we've been thinking about, asking God to lead in, giving patience and time to, 
I'm not even just saying since I've been the pastor. I can think of a decade ago when Pastor Mike and Pastor Chuck were still here, we had these kind of conversations. What is the New Testament describing for us? So are we going to follow what the scriptures teach us or just lean into the status quo, our tradition? If you would agree that this is the true pattern in the New Testament, then shouldn't we follow the wisdom that God has provided in his word, even if we still have some unanswered questions or we're not exactly sure how this will work out? Why pursue this change? Secondly, it leads to healthier churches. That's what Paul was convinced of. He was so convinced that this was vital that he leaves one of his most trusted fellow ministers there in Crete to accomplish and see to this task. A church will only be as strong as its leaders are godly. Do you see that? That's what's happening in this letter. A church will only be as strong, as healthy, as able to defend itself as its leaders are godly. We also want to see healthy churches developed beyond what we're doing here at Subaru Road. One of the ways the gospel goes forward, it continues to change lives, is through the sending out of qualified, trained, and faithful teachers and preachers of God's word. We've seen that as we've looked at Acts 14, 13 and 14. They're not all supposed to stay here. We should be praying and preparing for God to raise up men that we love and trust who are ministering among us, but that we are going to send out to help other churches. Why pursue this change? Because it helps your current pastors faithfully shepherd God's people. If we understand that being a church means investing in each other's lives, speaking the word to one another over and over again, then certainly we'll understand that we need more qualified men to teach sound doctrine and model godliness before us. If you're convinced that the church is just about a few programs that the pastors need to administrate from the top down, then sure, we don't need that many. But if you understand what discipleship is, getting into somebody's life, investing your heart and time and emotion and caring for them and praying with them, that takes a lot of time. Consider the gravity and privilege and immense responsibility that providing soul care to every member of the flock requires. Every member needs more of God's word in their lives as they face challenges in their workplaces. Every member needs discipleship and Bible studies and sound teaching and attention from a godly leader. There's significant need for biblical counseling and encouragement of the singles in our church, of those that are married, of those that are parenting. There are marriages that need strengthening and encouragement and help. There are parents who are looking for godly input and direction from mature leaders. Pastors are to be praying regularly for their members, following up with those who are sick and discouraged. And your pastors are part of the flock as well. They run out of energy. This is all-consuming. This isn't a nine-to-five job. We need encouragement and accountability from other shepherds who understand the pressures of this role. Why pursue this ministry? Or why pursue this change, rather? Because God finally has given these gifts to his body. And we're to employ his gifts to the best of his ability, of his gifting. So this is one of the strongest reasons why I'm compelled to pursue this change. 
because I'm convinced that in this body, there are more men who are gifted and equipped to lead and we just need to recognize them and let them go. We've seen that happen, as I mentioned, in the, in the life of Jonathan. We want to see this happen again and again and again. How many elders should a church have? As many as God has gifted them with. And we need to keep finding and working and developing and training. Can you have too many godly, mature examples in your life? And once they grow, we send them out. We help other churches. In Acts 20, Paul tells the Ephesian elders that the Holy Spirit made them elders. The Holy Spirit called them to that role. This wasn't Paul's doing. It wasn't the Ephesian church's doing. Now, these aren't men that are hearing some call on their own and saying, well, I'm an elder. You have to recognize me. No, this is done in conjunction with the church. It's done in conjunction with Paul, with other leaders. But ultimately, this is the gifting of God. We see this in Ephesians 4. If God has provided us with men who are spiritually mature and gifted to teach, then we need to be examples to the body and put them in a position to use their gifts. Go to it. Christ builds his church through the faithful stewardship of godly leaders for his glory. My desire is to be faithful with the scriptures that I'm seeing. To encourage our body with the gifts that God has given us. To put before every man in the church that they need to be maturing toward one of these two offices. There's no reason that every man in this church should not aspire to deacon or elder as described in the Bible. And because the qualifications are so ordinary, they describe what every Christian, male or female, children are to be pursuing and to looking like in following Christ. We're just modeling what all Christians are to be. Will you pray that he will continue to do that in our church? Prayer is where we must start. And it may be a prayer, God, help me. I'm not comfortable with this. I still have a lot of questions. I'm not convinced by these reasons for why we pursue this change. That's okay. Read God's word. Study it for yourself. We want to lead you carefully, slowly, patiently. Please come and see one of the pastors as questions arise in your mind. We'd love to dialogue with you and have a discussion. We simply are trying to follow where the text leads us. Our desire is to serve our Lord and his people to the best of our ability as we see it laid out in his word. That's what we're discussing. That's what we're seeking to do by his grace that we might become a more and more healthy church, that we might put in order what remains to be put in order. Let's ask for his help now as we conclude. Our gracious God in heaven, we thank you for your word, that it gives us guidance and direction in a most serious aspect of our church life. Lord, the application for most of us today is simply to take seriously what you have placed here before us in your word, that we're to take seriously, that we're to understand and own. Lord, this is a conviction that Paul had so much, he would invest one of his best fellow servants in doing this, in separating himself from his own fellowship. 
that Titus might do that work. Father, may we be committed to understanding how this is to work in our own body. We love you. We want to glorify you. We want to be humble before you. We want to follow you. Help us to do that by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.